Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Q1370 WQLL. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the contents in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. I'm Bob Krebs, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. The Glen Mary Home Missioners are a Catholic society of priests and brothers and nuns who, along with lay co-workers, are dedicated to establishing a Catholic presence in rural areas and small towns of the United States where the Catholic Church is not yet effectively present. The community was founded in 1939 by a priest of the Archdiocese of Baltimore to serve what he termed No Priest Land USA. Father Chet Artichevitz is the president of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Father, welcome to Catholic Baltimore. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about your work uh, with um, the uh, Glen Mary Order. Is that the proper term? Yeah, Glen, our, our title is the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Yeah. And the title kind of describes what we are. Um, back in the 1930s, there was a, a priest out in Clarksville, Maryland, by the name of William Howard Bishop, who sensed that the Catholic Church was not strong everywhere in this country. He had a little rural parish. In fact, he was the, uh, became president of the National Catholic Rural Life Conference. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like many founders, he has this image that, you know, there's a need that's not being met. So to demonstrate the need, uh, what Father Bishop did was take a map of the United States uh, and he had data that he could say where the priests were located. So for every county in the United States that didn't have a priest, now there were over 3,000 counties in the United States, for every county that did not have at least a resident priest, he would darken it. And so he darkened over 1,000 counties. Mm. And this became his, his battle cry to the country. This is what we call No Priest Land USA or, or Mission Land USA. And Father Bishop's uh, charism was said, there should be at least one religious order whose total dedication is to these mission regions. And today, as then, back in the 1930s, um, the area where the church was not very strong or not present at all was down through the Appalachian region, down through the Deep South, what we would call today the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. We date our uh, official founding to 1939. And Glenmary is a group of uh, priests, brothers, uh, Glenmary sisters, and also trained lay workers that continue to work in these regions. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your formative years and, and how you ended up uh, with this uh, organization. So going through school at St. Elizabeth's, when I, when I went into the high school, um, we were taught, of course, by Benedictine sisters. And I would, I would trace my, my interest and, and the inspiration to me uh, to the Glimmer, to the to the Benedictine sisters, who, in their own way, were able to get me um, in contact. Here's what happened: um, we had a, a sister, Sister Alberta, who came in and kind of challenged our classes, our young people, and said, "What, what are you going to give to the church? Are you just going to take?" Aren't you going to contribute things? You know, the, the Mormons demand two years of their young people. What are you all going to, to give back? Well, I was a junior at the time, and there were four girls from, our, from the senior class who responded to that and decided to go to North Carolina 
to give a year of service. They didn't didn't want to be religious sisters. They they wanted to, but they wanted to contribute to the church, and they would take census down there. And at that time, now North Carolina's Catholic population was probably less than one percent as a whole state. So uh, not a very Catholic state, so they're taking census and, of course, teaching catechism at that time, which was basically the Baltimore Catechism. So um, during that year, I'm now a senior, and Sister Alberta said, you boys should be doing something, too. You know, this is not just for girls. So she um, challenged us, and I said, you know, I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But anyhow, this, this idea of doing a year of service, I thought, you know, that'll help me clarify in my mind what I want to do. So we tried various avenues and kept hitting the wall. Um, Sister Alberta herself wrote to the Bishop of North Carolina, and he said, it sounds like a good idea to have a program for these boys, but maybe I'll I'll try something next year, which didn't help me. Uh, She wrote to the priests who were working with the girls, and he said, well, you know, I I don't have facilities. We wrote to the Extension Society, which does a lot of work for the the missionaries in the United States, but I was turned down because I wasn't 21. I was only 18. So in corresponding to one of these uh, girls who graduated the year ahead of me, uh, she and this group had come across some Glenmary priests down in North Carolina, and one of them said, well, why don't you tell the guy to write to Glenmary, and maybe they can use him. So I did, and ultimately they placed me as a volunteer uh, in a little town in Pennsylvania called McConnellsburg. Glenmary had just opened a mission there the previous year, and um, it was an old building, and I went there and gave a year of service basically doing whatever I could to help the priest. But it was at the end of that year that I, I, I saw what these fellows did, you know, and I liked the spirit of the community. Um, the, the, when I first got there, they were preparing for confirmation for the next week, and there were three Glenmary brothers who were working long hours to get the building ready. And uh, some they have, I mean, I watched them. I was working really alongside them, and I thought, these guys are working 10, 12 hours, and they're still happy. They're not grousing. They're not griping. I said, there has to be something here. So at the end of that year, I said, I think this is what I want to pursue and entered the seminary. And nine, nine years after that, I was ordained in 73. So you were ordained in 73. What, what have you been doing since then, Father? Well, uh, if... <laughs> been busy, I bet. Right? Well, it looks like it. I mean, uh, it's sometimes if you look at my assignment sheet, uh, it might look like I'm a troublemaker, but really <laughs> what they say is that, well, you're flexible. You can do a lot of things. I began uh, a three... My first three years as a priest was down in eastern Kentucky. Uh, we had a six-county parish, and I was one of the team of Glenmarians there. We had a Glenmary brother, another Glenmary priest, some Glenmary sisters to serve the six-county area. After that, I was asked to do vocation ministry for my community, which meant that I traveled around to a lot of places. My, my area being the East Coast, I was down in Baltimore and spoke at uh, Cardinal Gibbons, and I, was, I couldn't understand why there was a picture of Babe Ruth in the, in the lobby until I realized that that was, used to be what St. Mary's, I believe mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. where he had attended school. Right. So up and down the East Coast, speaking at colleges. So I did that for five years. Then after I had my first pastorate down in Georgia, where I was there for uh, six years from 81 uh, to 87, we were one of the distinctive things I think that happened in that, in that time there was that um, there, there was some Obviously, it was a time, a difficult time racial, with racial tensions, but the Ku Klux Klan uh, had made a commitment to march through every town in Georgia. And in my little town, which was probably about 53% African-American, when the Klan came through, uh, we had whites and, and blacks together at the courthouse. 
and um, chanting in unison, you know, clan go home. So they were, it, it was a sign of tremendous progress, I think, that, that had been made there in the Deep South. Um, after that, I was assigned to an Appalachian County in, in Ohio, Adams County, followed up by another stint to Georgia. I've had three different assignments in Georgia. This one was in, a, in the Atlanta Archdiocese. The other had been in Savannah. And these were starting churches from scratch, which is, I, I, this may sound uh, daunting, this is the most, uh, for us, the most thrilling and, and, and exciting thing to drive in in a U-Haul and to start something up from the grassroots. And, and, and that's what we did. Um, there were people who were having to travel 25 or 35 miles uh, to various churches. And um, it, it, it was difficult. And sometimes, you know, it was a hardship to get there. So the Archbishop of Atlanta wanted us to start some parishes there that would make the church more accessible. Um, let me just interrupt this. When, when I talk about Glenberry going to these mission areas, one of the things to remember is that uh, when we go in, generally speaking, we're less than 1% of the, of the population. Um, you know, you can think of missionary work, and it can come under many, many valid uh, descriptions. Uh, I think of, of priests in, in Latin America and other places where they have to cover maybe 20 mission stations, and they only get to one mission uh, or two missions a week, mm -hmm. and they'll do that cycle. Our approach, uh, our missionary endeavor, is slightly different in the sense that we will come into an area that is not Catholic and try to establish the church and make it available, um, respecting, of course, people's uh, individual beliefs. And, you know, they may be longstanding and loving, uh, loving the Lord and very dedicated uh, Protestants and all. Um, but there's a huge percentage that has no church affiliation, you mm -hmm. know, maybe close to half, 50 percent. So to offer them what we are as the church is, is one of the things we do. But it's always in an area that is almost negligibly Catholic whatsoever, less yeah. than 1%. Um, I was asking somebody in one of these talks, I said, how many Catholic churches could you hit in a 50-mile radius? And they said, well, we couldn't count them. I think I was doing this around Scranton. You're going to be taking in New York and everything in a 50-mile radius. And I said to them, uh, I was the only priest and the only church in a 50-mile radius in one of my missions. Wow. And it, you know, kind of... But rural America is different than, than urban living, you sure. know? Yeah. And so, you, um, I, and I say to folks, you know, maybe when you were traveling to Florida, you said, gee, I had a hard time finding a church in, in Georgia, you know? And, but, and I, I would say that's an inconvenience, but it's also a sadness that the church isn't available to everybody. Father Chet Artishevitz, thanks so much for being with us today on Catholic Baltimore. Truly my pleasure. For more information about the work of the Glen Mary Home Missioners, visit glenmary.org. For Catholic Baltimore, I'm Bob Krebs. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. A 500-year-old oil painting of the glorification of the Virgin Mary is now on display at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. It's a genuine feast for the senses. Inspired by John's apocalyptic vision of a woman clothed with the sun, the image shows a crowned Mary surrounded by an intense radiant glow. Standing atop a black dragon whose eyes are set on the infant Jesus resting in her arms, the woman maintains a tranquil expression with downcast eyes. The painting by a Dutch artist is half of a diptych on loan from a Rotterdam museum. It's just one of more than 100 works, including stained glass, precious metals, ivories, tapestries, paintings, prints, and illuminated manuscripts from 25 collections in the U.S. and around the world that make up a feast for the senses, art and experience in medieval Europe.
The free exhibition is at the Walters through January 8th. Read more at catholicreview.org or in our upcoming print edition. Also on catholicreview.org, Nancy Wycheck and Chaz Muth of Catholic News Service take us to another kind of feast for the senses, America's National Parks. It's not widely known, but many of the parks include religious symbols, not because our country is endorsing a religion, but because those religions have been involved with the national parks since before their inception. Furthermore, many of the parks include accommodations for the religious. The Sacred Heart Chapel in Grand Teton National Park, for example, offers mass and remains open for daily prayer. Even John Muir, who urged the country to create national parks in the 19th century, had religion in mind to a certain extent. Everybody needs beauty and bread, places to play in and pray in, he wrote in a letter to lawmakers. Find these stories and many more at catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, this is Eric Zygmunt. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have The Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today in print and online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Q1370 WQLL. I'm Bob Krebs, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. The National Catholic Educational Association, or NCEA, is the largest private professional education association in the world. The NCEA works with Catholic educators to support ongoing faith formation and the teaching mission of the Catholic Church. Their membership includes more than 150,000 educators serving 1.9 million students in Catholic education. Dr. Tom Burnford is the president and CEO of the NCEA. Dr. Burnford, welcome to Catholic Baltimore. Thank you, Bob. A pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about the the NCEA and um, what its mission is, and 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 what it's doing to to uh, to help Catholic education, Catholic schools throughout the United States. Before we do, though, Tom, just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I, uh, uh, you may notice an accent. I'm from England originally. Uh, went to Catholic schools there, and then came to the United States uh, right after high school. Um, and uh, studied theology, and then worked in a Catholic parish in Maryland, and was blessed to get to know Catholic schools uh, and Catholic education in general, working in the Archdiocese of Washington, uh, working with Cardinal Worrell in a particular way to support Catholic schools. Um, I have three children at home, all of whom go to St. Peter's Catholic School in Olney, Maryland, and uh, are doing really well. 
uh, and most recently, uh, this past August, was honored to be asked to serve as the president of the National Catholic Educational Association. In case our listeners aren't familiar with the NCEA, you know, what is it and when was it formed? NCA was formed back in 1904, so a rich history, oh, wow. yep. uh, supporting Catholic education in all its forms, uh, most recently supporting specifically Catholic schools across the country. We are the largest professional uh, private uh, education association in the world, uh, working with 6,500 Catholic schools in the United States, serving just under 2 million students, and providing resources, materials, professional development, leadership development to about 150,000 Catholic educators across the country, wow. teachers, principals, and superintendents. Wow, that's terrific. So what would you say are the goals or the mission of uh, NCEA? Our mission is to serve our members, and the members are the teachers, the principals, the superintendents who day in and day out provide a great academic and faith formation to these two million students across the country. So we support them, and we support them with professional development, with great resources, we share best practices across schools, and we do that through the Momentum magazine, and we also serve as the voice of Catholic schools. So we try to respond to people who may be critical of Catholic education, mm -hmm. and in a big way, we try to tell the great story of what's happening in Catholic schools across the country. What makes an ideal Catholic school? Now, you have a, a better uh, view. You have a more national view. So, so w what would you say makes an ideal Catholic school? There, there are a lot of components to an ideal Catholic school. And what strikes me is that I see elements of each of these components in all the schools that I visit. Now, I'm just starting to visit schools, but, but visited a number and worked with schools for a long time. And those would be a sense of community that's built around a common mission of passing on the faith to future generations and also providing a high-quality, well-rounded academic education. What we look for in the ideal Catholic school is attention being paid to the spiritual formation of the student, the academic formation, and indeed the formation of their body, spirit, mind, and body, all parts of the person educated in a Catholic school. We look for a close relationship to the church so that the fullness of the gospel is passed on. And what we also see is well-formed, well-certified professional teachers and principals who do great work day in, day out, passing on the faith. We all hear uh, you know, about some of the challenges that Catholic schools face. In your opinion, what are some of those challenges? So indeed, there are joys and there are challenges. Uh, one of the challenges is funding, clearly, the financing of Catholic schools. We live in a, uh, we live in a, a country where um, uh, the tax dollars that come from everybody, everybody pays into tax dollars for education, but those tax dollars are restricted to those who choose public schools, which, to be frank, is unjust. Parents have a right to choose the best school for their children, and that right is meaningless unless there are funds that come from everybody to support that parental choice in education. So first of all, we have to correct that injustice. And so that's a big challenge because we have to rely on tuition, and we know not all the families can afford that tuition. That's a, a big challenge for us. We're so grateful for the generosity of so many people who help with tuition assistance programs and also help bridge the gap between the cost of educating a child and the published tuition. I think it's important to note that Catholic schools 
educate. When we educate these 2 million students, we're saving taxpayers about $24 billion a year yeah. through this. Sure. Yeah. But this is something we need to know and we need to talk about. Yeah. So finance is an issue that can lead to, in some areas, declining enrollment. There is declining enrollment in Catholic schools across the country. We need to acknowledge that. But it's not universal. There are parts of the country where there's growth, uh, particularly in the South uh, and in the West. Uh, and we see, vi we see vibrancy everywhere, but in some places there's growth. And while there have been some consolidations and some closures in the middle of the country on the East Coast, which we want to avoid and we're doing everything we can to do it, we also know there's great vibrancy as well. And school choice is successful in Florida, in Illinois, uh, in Phoenix, and in a number of other parts of the country. So, um, and it's growing. Currently, there are 27 states in the union who have some form of parental choice legislation that's been enacted, some form of help. There are about 59 programs in those 27 states. And this changes fairly frequently depending upon how legislation is passed. Sure. What we know is that we know that even small amounts can help families. There are about 400,000 families out of 2 million who are being helped in some way by these initiatives. And every year that grows, the number of programs grows, but it requires a lot of work. And it's the responsibility of all Catholics, because all Catholics vote, to be aware of the parental choice situation and to work for it. We have great information and resources on the NCA website about this, as does the Bishop's Conference. In general, what would you say the future holds for our Catholic schools? The, the future's bright. The future's bright. We see a society around us that is becoming, or has become, in many ways, numb to faith, and even antagonistic and against what we believe. We see attacks on religious liberty, and parents are being faced with choices about what they want in the formation and education of their children. Catholic schools provide an environment that is safe, that has excellent academics, and most importantly, provides an opportunity for students to encounter the living God. This is transformative for this life. It's transformative for eternal life. And we want to work with parents, any parents, who want that for children. The future is bright. The collaboration, I should note, is very significant with dioceses working together, bishops working together, foundations working together, both to tell a story and to practically address the issues. So from my perspective, I'm thrilled with the opportunity that I have yeah. to see schools across the country and to feel that vibrancy, to talk to the teachers, all of whom are committed, um, love the students that they care for, and also do a great job informing them witnessing the faith to them, and providing them with a great start to life. Well, Tom, your enthusiasm for Catholic schools is certainly apparent and, and certainly contagious. How can our listeners get more information about Catholic schools and about the work of the NCEA? So we have a website, which is ncea.org. Uh, we do social media at ncea.talk and Facebook and Twitter. and So we, we're out there. Yeah. Uh, you can just Google NCEA and you'll find us. That's one element. The other element, of course, is to get in touch with your local Catholic school because that's where you're going to see what I'm talking about lived and manifest. If you know someone whose kids go to a Catholic school, talk to them. Look it up on your diocesan website. You'll find the schools. If you've got kids and you're thinking about it, go visit the school. Call up. Look at their website. Go visit. Yeah. 
because that's where the excitement is and that's where things are happening. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Dr. Tom Burnford, the president and CEO of the NCEA, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much, Bob. My pleasure. Once again, for more information about the NCEA, go to www.ncea.org. You can learn about the great Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Baltimore at archbalt.org. For Catholic Baltimore, I'm Bob Krebs. The season of sacraments is nearly here. First Holy Communion, Confirmation, and Weddings. Visit the Baltimore Basilica, America's first cathedral, and stop by the gift shop for all of your gift needs. From beautiful frames to crucifixes and crosses, statues and one-of-a-kind rosaries, the Basilica gift shop has it all. Friendly, knowledgeable staff members can help you select the perfect gift. Also available, Baltimore's very own Mouth Party Caramels, locally designed hand-painted signs, and jewelry. Plus gifts for Easter as well as an extensive line of St. Patrick's Day items sure to bring out the Irish in everyone. Visit the Basilica Gift Shop at 409 Cathedral Street in Baltimore or call 410-727-3565 for hours and directions. Free street parking available directly in front of the Basilica between 9.30 and 4 p.m. Life can be hard, and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator who would be happy to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.